The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. I want to begin this morning with um, one verse from 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you can turn your way over to 1 Corinthians 16. As Paul is wont to do, he's bringing his letter to the Corinthians in for a landing and uh, and tends to end his letters with a number of final charges, final admonitions, along with greetings and so forth. And so he's in the midst of that. This is the the end of 1 Corinthians 16. And I just want to read verse 13. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's all kinds of reasons why this verse is, is striking. First of all, it's amazing this got by the, the editors of the ESV. How did that happen? At least it's amazing that there's no footnote, right, that says this could mean women too. Because they knew they couldn't get away with it, right? But what's striking, of course, is that Paul is charging the entire church here, men, women, and children, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and act like men. Wait a second, Paul, you know, women are supposed to be women, yes. But there is a, an overarching uh, fact of the way God made the world such that uh, men are the leaders. And when men act like men, they're actually freeing and, and making room for women to be women and children to be children. And when men abdicate that responsibility, they're actually stealing from the rest of the human race. And so there's a, a dominant masculine tenor to personal piety. This is what I want to argue for. Um, actually, this verse, the Lord used this verse. I mentioned last night that um, for a number of years, I was involved in campus evangelism, open-air preaching, and, uh, and the Lord used this verse to trick me into that. I, I was minding my own business, being a, you know, I thought of perfectly decent, reformed pastor. And one morning in, in, my, in my reading of scripture, I came across this verse and it, and it really just, it just, just hit me between the eyes like a two by four and it just, I don't know what, what it was. I hadn't gotten enough sleep that night. I, I don't know, but it just hit me and I was convicted and I thought, oh my goodness, we've gotta be men. We've got to be bold. We've got to be strong. And as it turned out, um, so I've been pastoring for the last 10 years at 
Trinity Reformed Church. Jake mentioned last night, I'm in the process of actually taking a position now at Christ Church, but Trinity was planted by Christ Church uh, 15 years ago, and it's been our practice since the beginning that we the sessions meet jointly very regularly. And, um, uh, and so uh, we were scheduled for a joint session meeting that coming Thursday morning, and I was, every time we meet, um, Pastor Doug Wilson and I would rotate, one of us would give a, a short devotional exhortation at the beginning of, of, the, of the session meeting, a charge to the elders. And so that week I was, I was reading this verse and it just hit me and I was convicted and I was thinking, we, 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 can't, we can't just be apathetic, we've gotta be, we've gotta be pushing hard. God's blessed us, we need to get busy with the work of the ministry, we need to be men, we need to be strong, we need to stand firm. And so this is on my mind and I go to the elder meeting and this is my charge, men, men. We need to be men. And I, and I give this charge and, and it was, and, and the spirit was just, it was, it, it was working. It was beautiful. And the men came up afterwards and said, thank you. That was exactly what we needed to hear. It was wonderful. And I get back to my office and I pull up Gmail and, there, and I click on my inbox and there's this email from a guy in my church who, he's a good guy, he's a friend of mine. He never emails me. And, and there's one line and it says, dear Toby, there's so many people lost at the University of Idaho. Will you go with me there this Friday and preach to them? And I thought, no, this is a conspiracy. Lord, anything but this. It did. I, I was, and I knew. Yes, you can. There you go. And I knew in that moment that I had to go preach. I knew that there was no way that I could stand up that next Sunday morning in front of my people and proclaim the gospel to them with any kind of integrity if I didn't go out onto the campus and preach. And so, before I could change my mind, I hit reply and I said, yes, what time? And then I pulled up YouTube to try to find out what open air preaching looked like. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) And, and I f- immediately found about 10 examples of what I didn't want to do. God has designed the world such that there is a, when men are pious, when men repent of their sins, when men pursue God, with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, God is in the process of doing something glorious and wonderful for all of God's people. But there, and, and because of this, because of this, there is, there is enormous weight, there is an enormous gravity, a satanic tide trying to get men not to do this. 
So one of the great gains of modernity against the church has been the invasion and I would describe the near triumph of what I would call a therapeutic gospel. Surely there's nothing new under the sun. Men have bowed before this idol under different names in ages past. In its current incarnation, the Christian church has largely succumbed to a false gospel of therapy via the hooks and poisons of sentimentalism. We are inundated with sentimentalism. And what I mean by sentimentalism is that the ultimate standard for evaluating the world, evaluating truth, goodness, beauty, right, wrong, piety, the central highest standard is feelings. How does it make me feel? Do I feel holy? Do I feel righteous? Does that feel good? Does that feel true? Does that feel lovely? And so the therapeutic gospel is the good news of salvation through an attitude adjustment. That's the therapeutic gospel. It's the good news of salvation through an attitude adjustment. And so in this view, in this worldview, the fundamental problem with the world is that people feel bad. Right? That's the problem with the world. People feel bad. And therefore, this is why people do bad things. This is, you know, this is the explanation of this worldview. The reason why people do bad things is because they feel bad. And so if we can just get them to stop feeling bad, they'll stop doing bad things. Why do, uh, why do young men walk into schools and begin shooting people? Well, because they feel bad. Their feelings were hurt. And so if we can just dig down deep enough to figure out which feelings got hurt and why, perhaps we can jumpstart their feelings with happy thoughts, positive thinking mantras, a sweet guitar solo, words of affirmation, or, as is often the case, the right chemical cocktail. We can medicate this. Of course, Orthodox Christianity affirms that original sin extends to our feelings. That's part of the problem. But this is a terribly anemic view of original sin. And more importantly, this therapeutic gospel attempts to rehabilitate man at the cost of his dignity. What I mean is, it robs men of the dignity of guilt. Right? One of the greatest gifts that God gives his people is the dignity of guilt. You chose to do that because you are a moral agent. You have made choices and you made evil choices. And when God confronts us with our sin, he is offering us the dignity of being a man who has failed. but the therapeutic gospel robs man of the dignity of guilt, the responsibility he has for his choices. Feelings is an amorphous category that's difficult to define, and it carries with it the assumption that someone or something else is causing it, and therefore, I'm not responsible. I don't know why I feel this way. It was my mom, it was my dad, it was my wife, it was, it was this, I don't know, the weather. 
right? Anything but me. Now I want to be try, I try to be as unfeeling and calloused as possible by further explaining the predicament we are all in as the feminization of the church. Now, all things being equal, God has generally gifted women with a much higher emotional IQ than men in general. And this is essential for the tasks they've been given. This is a good thing. It's a glorious thing. But let's just say that dress doesn't look good on men. The point isn't that men should be emotional dolts. But the point is that without careful distinctions being made between the callings of men and women, a subtle form of cross-dressing begins here. Sentimentalism is what happens in a culture on a broad scale when men surrender their masculinity, when they surrender masculine piety. And therefore, sentimentalism creeps into the church by means of the failure of its leaders to be masculine in their piety. In their piety. Um, what I, what I want to do is just, I wanna, this is a long introduction really, but, but I want to I emphasize just sort of how bad it is before I talk about what we should do about it. Maybe you know this, maybe you realize this, but let me, let me just give you a couple of examples of how far we've come. Uh, in Ann Douglas, as a really wonderful, wonderfully helpful uh, classic work, The Feminization of American Culture. If you haven't read that, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> um, get it. The Feminization of American Culture. Um, She argues that a significant part of the growth of sentimentalism in America was driven by, surprise, the church. Right? So she is, she's chronicling the feminization of American culture and she lays it at the feet of the church and Christian ministers in particular. Specifically, she says this can be seen in the literary turn of many clergymen over the course of the 19th century. The literary turn of many clergymen in the 19th century. We're talking about 1800s here. While some sentimentalism turned toward emotional revivalism, so you have the Charles Finney Second Great Awakening thing, so some of the sentimentalism turned to this overly emotional revivalism, other forms of sentimentalism incarnated as a somewhat more eloquent, perhaps highbrow, though uh, popular, forms of literature. In other words, pastors started writing poetry and stories and essays. Of one such famous preacher's sermons, it was said, quote, it produced as great an effect upon my feelings as it would have to have heard a great tragedy well performed at a theater. No more upon my belief, for belief belongs to understanding. 
and should not be biased by hopes and fears. That's how that man preached. Like a well-performed tragedy. Douglas describes the expectations of another well-known minister's congregation. Quote, they did not expect or perhaps want their pastor to elicit from them a response more vehement than a book could create. Unquote. They were, quote, people who expected less to be converted than to be socialized into religious awareness. No matter how superficially or crudely in many instances, by polite literature. Socialized into religious awareness rather than converted. In 1835, Reverend William Peabody reviewed a woman's published poetry, specifically praising her genius, contrasting her feminine creativity, which may, quote, always be found on religion's side, And he contrasted that with the masculine, quote, militant spirit and its fierce energy. What's on religion's side? Feminine creativity, which is opposed to the masculine militant spirit and its fierce energy. This is back in 1835. And yes, these are, these are the early liberals. These are the first liberals and they're going Unitarian and so on. But I'm just saying it's been in the air. It's been in the water for 200 years in America. This is what we've been told. This is, this is the forms we've been given. This is the standard that we've been given. This is what piety looks like. It's feminine creativity. It's poetic Douglas goes on to describe the assumption of many that pastors were basically expected to follow the same rules of decorum as women and were to work to influence the public square through unobtrusive influence. Quote, the press offered liberal ministers and literary women an opportunity for long distance preaching as a calculated display of good manners. Right, this is what pastors are supposed to do. Right, they, be, they come to be expected to be people like women who influence the culture around them through their calculated display of good manners. A kinder God presented in a kindlier fashion. After 1810, Ministers tended to be significantly more interested in, quote, avoiding theological argumentation and in exploring the possibilities of the essay, the poem, even the novel, as apt conveyances for their views. So this talk is aimed at the shepherds of the church. Keep a close watch, conflict with yourself, but, I, but I, what I want to do is I really want us to be careful here. As I thought about it, I actually became a little less satisfied with the way Jake, Jake described my talk. Now, to be clear, I did sign off on the description. But that was months ago, long before conference speakers give thought to what they're actually going to say. But I, too, I do take responsibility for it. I do. Yeah, it's my fault. 
And the particular point of concern is the statement that we must fight ourselves before we are able to engage in fruitful conflict with others. And just a little, a little quibble. Now, of course, first of all, there's a, there's a form of flaming Pharisaic hypocrisy that God abhors. Right? If you're standing up on Sunday morning and, and condemning uh, you know, adultery and you have a porn habit, you're asking God to judge you. If you get up on Sunday mornings and you're urging husbands to love their wives like Christ loves the church and you lose your temper with your wife, and you're not repenting of it and turning away from it and killing it, you're an evil man. So of course, in that sense, absolutely. You have to be dealing with your own sin first. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye, right? A man who's not confessing his own sins is a blind man leading the blind. But I also think we need to be suspicious of our instincts. Just how much worldly wisdom have we imbibed? The idea that feminine piety is the standard for piety has been in the air for at least 200 years in America. So just how much worldly wisdom have we imbibed? Unless you live in a shack in the middle of Montana, you've, you've been, you're marinating in feminism. You're marinating in egalitarianism. You're marinating in the therapeutic gospel and in sentimentalism. So we need to keep a close watch on even how we might be tempted to keep a close watch on ourselves. Do you see what I mean? Right? Because if we just go, okay, keep a close watch, you might very quick, easily just pick up the feminine piety stuff that you've been, hand- Look, quick, I better do this. Keep a close watch. No, so we need to keep a close watch on how we might be tempted to keep a close watch on ourselves. So it's, you know, I, you like my haircut. So the way I, the way I, you know, keep up with this, of course, is I have mirrors and I've got a, I use an electric razor thing and thing and I've got to look in the mirror at my, at the back of my head, make sure I don't miss anything. And every once in a while, my kind wife is nice enough to point out that I missed a patch and try again, honey. Right, so we need to keep a close watch and even how we might be tempted to keep a close watch. Now, of course, we might, be, we might, we might tie ourselves into existential knots that would do us no good at all. We, you know, do I need to keep a watch on myself, keeping a watch on myself, keeping a, my, a watch on myself? You know, like how, is there an infinite regress here? And then we're just sort of like, you know, bound in knots and I don't know if I'm doing it right. Remember, remember the story of William James? He's a father of, or the godfather of modern psychology, so he's probably one of our problems. He was uh, explaining one time to an audience of uh, people the, 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 the heliocentric view of the world. Uh, you know, sun at the center, and then there's the earth, and it orbits, and this old lady raises her hand in the back of the room and says, um, sir, I think you're wrong. I just think you're wrong. And he says, well, ma'am, how do you think it works? And, and the woman said, I believe the earth is firmly planted just right on top of the back of a cosmic turtle. And William James is you know, trying to be polite. And, All right, um, but what's that turtle on top of? And she says, why, of course, another turtle. 
And James is like, okay. <laughs> Trying to be gentle, but pointed out. So, but what's that? And she interrupts him and says, sir, no good, no good. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> so we want to be careful that we not tie ourselves into knots about this, but I want, we, we need to stop and say, okay, before we say, all right, we're going to keep a close watch on ourselves, how are we going to keep a close watch on ourselves? We need to check that in the light of God's word. So I want to, I want to explore, further explore the mission of conflict this morning by framing it in terms of the specific requirement that the shepherds of God's people must be men, and using this verse as our jumping off point, 1 Corinthians 16, that, that Paul says that men, being men, being godly men, being strong and being watchful, being vigilant, standing firm in the faith, that's the standard by which the church is to be led. That's the example that's to be set, not the other way around. Masculine piety is the standard And so we want to know, well, what does it mean then for a man to keep a close watch on himself? I've got three three headings. Uh, The first, perhaps, is the most obvious, but we need to say it, and we need to to jump up and down on it, and this is the task of self-mortification. This is the task of self-mortification. How do we keep a close watch on ourselves? How are we to be godly, pious men? Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is completely unsentimental right? There's no coaxing. There's no chemotherapy. There's no, nothing. Cut it off, throw it away. Hell or that, right? This is how men deal with sin. And we know this is in the context of what? Lust, right? Jesus knows what he's talking about. He says, don't be a girl, about your sin. Cut it off. Be a man. Kill it. Radical amputation. Right. What will it do if it keeps going? It will kill you. Kill it. What do men what are men tempted to do? Not that. I counsel many, many young men. A young man makes an appointment for, with me. He wants to come meet with me. I know what he wants to talk about. And I read this, this verse and I say, all right, are you really ready to do this? Right? Most of them aren't. Right? Throw your phone away. Leave your computer in my office. Cancel the internet. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean I've got homework to do. You want to go to hell? 
Their instinct is to manage it. Get some treatment. Can you just give me some encouraging words? Here are my encouraging words. Cut it off. This is how men deal with sin. What's your sin? Maybe it's not porn, maybe it's not lust, but maybe it's worry. Maybe it's anger. Kill it. Stand firm in the faith, act like a man, and be strong. Kill it. Cut it off. And if you can't bear to, go to someone who will cut it off for you. Go to, and say, I can't bring myself to cut my arm off. Cut it off for me. Be a man and do it. Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Notice that. Set your minds on things above so you can kill what is earthly in you. Right? So, Here's the thing, you're not commanded to spend inordinate periods of time in self-contemplation. You're actually commanded to spend your, your life, your time, contemplating Christ. Heaven, set your mind on things that are above. That's actually what gives you the power and the, the wisdom and the ability to kill what's down below. Look outside yourself Look at Jesus, who is your life, so that you can kill your sin. 90% of the time, when somebody says, I'm really struggling with, fill in the blank, this is Christian code for I'm not really struggling with it at all, I've pretty much given into it, but I feel guilty about it. Again, Paul says, put it to death. Kill it. And kill it by setting your mind on things above. Not things that are on the earth. You actually don't get more heavenly wisdom by focusing on your sin or your struggle or all, you get more wisdom by setting your eyes on Christ. He's the one who gives you the power to kill it. Leon Podles, or I don't know how you say his last name, Podles, really wise Roman Catholic man, has a book called Church Impotent, which is another book you should have, you should read, you should get if you haven't already. And his wonderful book, Church Impotent, argues that one of the essential characteristics of masculinity is separation. Separation. Whereas for femininity, it is communion. 
Podol's cites another author who suggests that men have, quote, a need for constant vigilance against their tendency to return to a state of boyhood in which the man is protected by women, fed by women, and cared for by women. In other words, we might say that men must be on constant guard against abdicating responsibility. That's what we must be on guard for. On constant guard against abdicating responsibility. Podol says that men must guard against being coddled so that they can become protectors and providers for women and children. I think this seems consistent with what God says in the Bible, specifically in Genesis, therefore a man will leave his father and mother. Or you could go back just prior to that when God created the woman, we looked at this last night, what does it mean to be a man? It means you get to die first. It means you get to die first, you get to bleed first in order to take responsibility. So, central to the task of a minister keeping a close watch on himself is actually dying to self. Killing self, losing self in obedience to Jesus for the good of others. So, we begin by what? Mortify sin, mortify self. Confess your sins like a man, then repent and move on. This is part of the problem. Sometimes a man says, I sinned, and then he sits there in a puddle. I'm so horrible, awful, self-pity, right? After about five minutes of that, you're being arrogant. You're not that important. I know there can be some really gnarly situations that take a long time to really untangle and work through. I know that. But in general, if it takes longer than 10 minutes, you're not doing it right. Confess your sin, repent of it, put it right, pay it back, do what needs to be done, and move on. You're not that important. You're a man. Your job is to die. But I'm really struggling. Shut up. I want to call this godly detachment, right? You're not that important. Lose your life. Lay it down. Lay down your, your failures. That's part of a lot of men's problems. They can't even lay down their failures. Lay it down. My wife and I have done some foster care, and one of the great the buzzwords for foster care is Attachment. Right, we're teaching children how to attach. Of course, there's great, there's great common grace wisdom in this. Um, they've noticed over the years that, that, uh, you know, that children that are you know, early on, they thought it was actually helpful to pass children from house to house to house to house to house to house to house, to house over their whole lifetimes. They thought it would help them not be so hurt by having really had strong bonds and then being torn away. So they, they had this principle of detachment. They didn't want them to attach. And it turns out that when people then age out of a system where they've never attached to anyone, that they don't know how to attach to anyone and they never do. And it's horrific. 
And so over the last several decades, there's this, been this massive turn the train around and they're saying, no, 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 no. We need to teach them to attach. They need to have the skills to attach. And even if on a couple of occasions they need to be moved to another place and so on, even that process of having attached, having that attachment hurt and broken, but then it, it, they've actually learned skills of attachment that are, will be useful to them throughout the rest of their life. There's something good and healthy about that, and I'm, I, I, that seems right to me. But again, when, when children are young, that's what they need. But a man leaves his father and mother. A man leaves. A man detaches And a man leads by constantly separating and detaching from himself, from his feelings. I do premarital counseling from time to time, and this is one of the talks. Somewhere in one of the the sessions I do with them, I look at the man and I say, you don't have any feelings. Kill them now, they're dead. You have no feelings. Kill your feelings. And then I smile and say, well, not really, but, but seriously, there's an, a beautiful, glorious asymmetry that God's put into the world, and he's made men to be strong in order to bear the weight of their wives and children and those around them. She can dump on you in a way that you must not dump on her. Now, yeah, she, you need to be honest, and she needs to know what's going on in your life, and it's not like you're hiding a bunch of stuff from her, but she needs to know that you've got it. The overarching theme, the overarching sentiment is, I've got it. Not because you're Superman, but because you are a man who knows that you're, you're constantly going and you're unloading to your Father in heaven, and you've got good men in your life, and you're saying, hold my arms up, honey, I got it. Right? And she knows when it's hard and she knows when it's rough. You're not hiding that from her, but you're not dumping on her. I've had wives come in and daughters, this happens sometimes with daughters and their dads and their dad and their husband thinks they're being transparent. Which means what? They, walk, they go in and they puke on their wife, basically. Here's how it was at work today. Right? And then the wife is left like, what do you want me to do with this? Be a man, detach, separate, leave your father and mother behind. You have to lead in order to take responsibility. In order to take responsibility, you have to lead. And you have to leave in order to do that. You have to have some distance to be able to say, okay, we're going this way. And we're leaving that behind. Fundamentally, a man must do this and a pastor must do this through repentance. Lead the way through leaving your sin behind. Lead the way through leaving your sin behind. Detach from it. Confess it, kill it, repent of it, make it right, do the restitution, then move on. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who you are. 
kill your sin, move on. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. So how does a man keep a close watch? A man kills his sin. Kills his sin. He doesn't coddle it. He doesn't try to treat it. He doesn't try to make deals with it. He doesn't play footsies with it. He kills it. There's a holy violence in this. He kills it and he leaves it dead and he walks away. He moves on. I remember I was going to tell you a story and I can't remember when I was going to tell you this story. So I think I'll tell it now. I uh, remember one of the times in which I, I had, in high school and junior high, I was a liar. And um, I I grew up, my dad's a a pastor, and I grew up in in a Christian home, and I don't remember not loving the Lord Jesus. I was saved early on. Um, And one of the ways I know that that the Holy Spirit lives inside me is because um, every time I sinned, I felt disgusting. And um, I remember you know, some of my earliest memories. I remember I was probably six or seven, and I, I blew up at some neighborhood kids and yelled at them and jumped on my bike and started riding furiously down the street, and I just wiped out. And I got up, and I knew that the Lord had thrown me off my bike. And I walked back, skinned knees and ripped up, and I told my friends, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I, and that's basically the story of my life. <laughs> that's how I know I'm a child of God. I remember, though, I had, I had problems lying in junior high and high school, and I'd lie, and I'd feel disgusting. And I'd bottle it up, and I'd try to... Grin, you know, and then finally I just feel so disgusted and I go and I bust myself to my parents or whoever it was and I'm never doing that again. And then, you know, a year later or six months, whatever, I do it again. And I remember what, what the Lord used to, to finally kill this. I was teaching, I think I was right out of college. I was teaching a, a, for a small boys school and uh, I don't even remember what the deal was, but I had to call home to a parent, a mom. And I called her and I gave her some kind of report on her son. And I got off the phone and all of a sudden that old friend, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> what did you just do? And I don't even remember what it was, but I lied. I lied about something to her. And by then, at least I knew enough to like, this is not going to get better. You can do it right now. So I got on the phone and I called her back and I said, I'm sorry, Mrs. So-and-so. I know this is weird, but I, I lied to you. And here's the truth. And I said, thank I forgive you. Sure, that's fine. And hung up. <laughs> and the worst of all things, the worst thing was that I, I lied again. <laughs> I sort of half-assed it. I kind of give a half apology. I, I, I apologize for lying and then I didn't quite tell her the whole truth, even in the process of apologizing. God said, you know, are you going to kill it or not? 
right? Do you really hate it? And so I had to call her back again. Mrs. So-and-so, I know this is really weird. I promise I won't have to call you back again, but I, I kind of lied again while I was apologizing. Will you please forgive me? And that's how the Lord taught me not to lie. So confess your sins. Confess them. Tell the truth. Let that shame burn down into your heart so you hate it. Right, because you can't kill stuff you don't hate. You can't. You can't kill it if you don't hate it. Do you hate it? You have to be angry. Secondly, masculine piety. Men keep watch on themselves through fighting alongside and with other good men. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. I never noticed this before, but you, you know that this verse, let me just make sure I'm gonna tell you the truth here. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I was, when I was looking at this verse, you know, you hear this all the time and it's like on all the, you know, be a man posters. Um, but right before it, it, it's talking about men. And the reason, it's not just men in general. It's not just mankind. It's, it's not people. I mean, of course, there's analogous uh, applications of this with women. But, but it's, a contra- it's a contrast, as Proverbs are, often do. You have the verses right before it are actually talking about a woman, about a wife, a continual dripping on a rainy day, and a quarrelsome Woman, quarrelsome wife, are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is how a man becomes sharp and hard in a godly way. He fights, he wrestles, he tackles. There's a great story in uh, Annie Dillard is a essayist and uh, she has a, a collection of essays called, um, I think it's An American Childhood. And she's got this great essay where she's talking about how she was a tomboy when she was a little girl and she loved playing with boys. She loved playing football with boys, street football with her neighborhood boys. Because, and the, the thing she loved about it was just how she, she realized, she said, the thing that I, I realized and the thing that I loved about the boys was because he says, she said, the way they played football, I mean, you're playing on a street and if you're timid or tentative in any sort of way, you will be no good at it. The boys that were good at it, they understood that you had to just run with all your might and throw yourself at it. 
And sometimes you missed and sometimes you messed up, but if you didn't throw yourself at it, you'd never do anything worthwhile at all. And she said, I just loved it. And then she goes on to tell the story about this time where they're in, uh, she grew up in Pittsburgh. And uh, she, she tells a story about one time she's out after a big snowstorm and they're, uh, they're hiding behind a big snow berm on an intersection and they're chucking big snowballs at cars as they drive by. And she says, you know, it was this, you know, this wonderful game. And of course, you know, you'd throw and you'd miss, but occasionally you'd hit and you'd get a car horn or maybe you'd get a, you know, an angry, ah, rah, rah, kids, you know, or a gesture. She said, and then one time she said, I th- we, we, one of them chucked a snowball and it landed right on the center of the windshield and the car pulled over and this middle-aged man in a suit got out and started chasing them. And she said, we started running and we're running and she's got this long, long narrative of running down alleys and the guy kept coming and, and they run through backyards and they jump fences and the guy keeps coming and he chased them for blocks and blocks and blocks. And she said, the further we went, she said, the bigger the smile got on my face. She said, I thought it was just glorious. Here's a man who cares. And she said, we finally got to this, we couldn't breathe, we were done running and we stopped and ah, we're out of breath and the guy comes up behind them and ah, and he's, we're sweating, he's snow, he's, his, his, his complete suit, it's, it's ruined. And she said it was just the glorious, she says, one of the most glorious moments in all my childhood. What a man, you know. And she said, and he, she said I think he just said something like, you stupid kids. <laughs> and then walked back to his car. <laughs> You have to throw yourself with all your might. You have to hate sin. Chase it. Chase it down. Wrestle it down. Tackle it. Why do pastors burn out? Uh, it's a little bit, maybe, maybe it's, Maybe it's wrong, I, I don't, you know, I, I've been pastoring for uh, 12 years. So I, I, maybe I'm, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But I don't think it's because they're working too hard or fighting too hard. I think this is almost an entirely feminine analysis of a masculine problem. I think men burn out because they stop fighting. They stop fighting. Now, okay, yes, you men, you need Sabbath. Okay, that's built into the, yes, you need Sabbath. You need breaks. You need time to study. You need time for prayer. I'm not denying any of those things, okay? If you're working seven days a week, you're sinning. Yes, that could cause you some burnout. But I think men burn out because they stop fighting. 
they get weary of the fight. But the charge is, don't grow weary in the fight. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The charges lay aside the weights, kill them, fight them, keep running, don't grow weary. You are made for this. You're made for this. Remember, it was in the spring when kings went to war that David stayed home and sinned with Bathsheba. You know, you wonder, like, were some of the, the, the court counselors? King, you need a break. You've been fighting a lot. You're tired. You need a sabbatical. Yes, I know, sometimes we need sabbaticals. I'm not saying you never need a sabbatical. I'm not, ever, I'm not saying you don't need rest, but I, I think you need to keep this in mind. I think men sometimes slowly stop fighting. They stop fighting things like killing your feelings. Who cares how you feel about this? Be faithful, be obedient. Kill your disappointment. Kill your fear. Go back to battle. You know, when somebody, when, when, I don't know if I really know this from experience, do I? Maybe I do. But you know, the, the, when someone is, it, it, you see this in stories and you know, probably in a bunch of these, I haven't watched much of the Olympics, but you know, probably in, it's probably showed up a few times in these biops that they do with the, the Olympians, right? But what happens when you are an athlete or you do something that requires a great deal of skill and you wipe out? you have to get back up and do it again as quickly as possible. Why? Because your head will start playing games with you. You have to get used to the process of falling down and get back up and do it again, right? You have to keep fighting. You have to get back in the game and you have to do it again and do it again. Now, if, you know, if the, if, if the elders come and the presbytery comes and says, you know, all right, thank you very much for playing. Do something else now. Take it from the Lord. If, 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 if there's sin developing in your home that's disqualifying you from ministry, that's from the Lord. Okay, good work, move on. I'm not saying keep fighting no matter what. I've talked to my wife over the years and said, we know, I know that the state of my family and the state of my children is God's affirmation of my call. And if things start cracking there, I'm done. Why? Because the Lord's calling me to something else. And I'm good with that. But frequently... I think men burn out because they stop fighting. 
So you have this virtual this industry burgeoning right now, right? The problem of pastoral burnout. And tons of it, I think, is a feminine solution to a masculine problem. A man's sanctification is outside of himself. A man's sanctification is outside of himself. You're to lose yourself, die to self, kill self. It's not, you've been crucified. It's now Christ who lives in you. So a man's sanctification is on the battlefield. How can you grow stronger? How can you grow more courageous? How can you grow thicker skin? How can you grow in endurance? Get up and go again. And that's how you grow in endurance. That's how you grow in patience. You get out there and you go. And as you're fighting, so yes, sin comes out. And then you say, oh, that was a sin. Please forgive me. That's awful. But that's how a man is sanctified. It's outside of himself. It's on the battlefield. So keep your eye on your duties. What has God called you to do? Do it. You might say masculinity, masculine piety even, is a certain studied, intentional obliviousness. Yeah, I know, you know. This can be taken wrong. Because we have a problem with obliviousness too, don't we? Men, men, we, we don't. We don't pay attention to the details that we do need to pay attention to. We don't pay attention to the things that we need to pay attention to. Yes, that's true, and we must learn to pay attention to them. But in order to do that, you've got to be oblivious to a lot of other things. Right? So what, what we do is we get it upside down and backwards, and so we're sitting there with our phone on the couch doing really important things, like checking Facebook, and you've got... You know, people around you who need your love and attention. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, Toby Sumter said that obliviousness is godly. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. No, what you need to be oblivious to is Facebook. <laughs> right? In that moment, what do you need to be oblivious to is who cares? Right? You've seen the little, the, the little meme or little comic, the... The, the guy sitting on the computer and the, the woman in the background and, you know, she, hold on, honey, someone's wrong on the internet. <laughs> right? Someone's wrong on the internet. No. But listen, what did Jesus do? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What are we supposed, we're supposed to lay aside every weight, get rid of the distractions, Be oblivious to the distractions, the things that get in the way. Leave them behind. The sin that clings, throw it down. Run with endurance. How do you run with endurance? Looking to Jesus. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, who did what? Who had his eyes fixed on the joy that was set before him. Right? Isn't it glorious that Jesus ignored so much? Isn't it glorious that Jesus could not be bothered with so many other things? 
But Jesus, you should come to our town and heal our sick people. No, I don't have time for that. But, but Jesus, don't you think you should have this discussion? No, I don't think I should. Yes, I'll heal this person and I'll have that conversation, but I've got to go to Jerusalem. A studied, intentional obliviousness to the details and the distractions that would keep us from running the race. We have this problem, but it's, it's because we're sinners that we do it wrong. It's actually a virtue. It's actually a skill set, right? How does a man go on a battlefield and kill people? By not thinking about anything but what he's supposed to do. Right? If, you're, if you go on the battlefield and you're thinking about everything else, you will be absolutely no good in the fight. So remember your duties. Love your God. Love your wife. Love your children. Preach the word. Confess your sins. How does a man become strong? He fights with and alongside other good men. Go to battle. Go, go fight. Now, I was talking about this a little bit last night. And, of course, I don't think that everyone has to fight the way I fight. Tim doesn't think that everyone needs to fight the way Tim fights. But every one of you needs to fight. You need to find out where the Lord has assigned you and be faithful there. Fight there. Fight with the gifts he's given you. Fight with the guns he's given you, the swords he's given you, the ammo he's given you. For some of you, that will be a much a lower profile fight. Behind the scenes, confrontation, one-on-one conversations. And some of you, it will be more out in the open. I don't care how you fight, fight. How does a man become strong? He fights with and alongside other good men and he recognizes that he was made for fighting and he knows that there's a danger in not fighting. There's a danger in taking breaks for too long. Get back in the game. Get up. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Of course, the Sodomites like to make hay with this verse, and we should not pretend it away or ignore it or be embarrassed by it. David is talking about the foundational love between men who have bled together and for one another, who have fought side by side and have sometimes fought one another. Podles, again, Leon Podles says, a man who has not bled and suffered, a man without scars, is no man at all. Jesus has scars. Where are your scars? I have a daughter buried in South Carolina, and I have a son buried in Idaho. I watched my father-in-law succumbed to cancer over the course of five years. I 
I remember in the middle of that wondering, I mean, Jenny's dad was just one of those, just like the, the archetypal grandfather. He loved history. He loved taking his children fishing, his boys on, on Saturdays. He loved hiking. He loved telling stories. You think, this is beautiful. This is what a grandfather is for, and he loved the Lord. And then the Lord took him from my kids. And I remember as, as, his, as his battle was growing to a close, I remember, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it that much, and I knew this is, this is from the Lord, and I, I walked, I, 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 I got that. But the thing that really dawned on me as, as we came in for a landing, as he was nearing the end, was no, no. What my kids needed more than fishing trips, what they needed more than history trips, what they needed more than all of those things was to watch their grandfather go through this. That's what they needed. They needed to be scarred by this. They needed to lose their grandfather. They needed to watch a faithful man die so they could grow up and be strong. You have different scars than I do that you better have scars. A man without scars is no man at all. I love Jacob. I love Jacob Mensel, but I also love Jacob from the Bible. That's what I meant. Right? I, I'm probably a little bit out of the... the uh, clear note orthodoxy here, but um, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Jacob and think he's pretty awesome, basically from beginning to end. I know that lots of folks think that he's kind of a chump, but um, nevertheless, he's a fighter. He's a fighter, and I think God, that's why God gave him bigger and worse fight. I mean, he's fighting in the womb. He's wrestling in the womb. He's wrestling with his brother. He's wrestling with his dad. He's fighting with his father-in-law. And then right there before he, he finally meets his brother who had sworn to kill him, he wrestles with the Lord. What a man. How do you wrestle God? No, I'm not letting go. Stop it. No. Right? That's Jacob. Right? I will not let you go until you bless me. I says, all right, but it's going to hurt. And then God punched him in the hip. And Jacob always limped after that. Where's your limp? You've wrestled with God and man and prevailed so let your name be Israel. All right, I think I'm out of time, but let me just finish this. Last, lastly. So a man fights his sin, kills his sin, confesses his sin, moves on, leaves the corpse behind. Fight your sin like a man. 
a man grows in godliness by fighting alongside and with other good men. His sanctification is on the battlefield. That's how you become a strong, hard, faithful man. Get up and go. Get up and fight. Lastly, you are called to joy. You are commanded to be joyful. You know this, Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. They had good reason to mourn and weep. They read the Bible, they read the scriptures, and they knew we're screwed. Right? We're, oh, gracious. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, no, go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So on the one hand, reformed men on the whole have a terrible reputation for being cranky, fussy, and belligerent. That's bad. But the solution must not be doctrinal compromise or some kind of youth pastor levity. I mean, that's what people do. They're like, well, I don't want to be the cranky guy, so I'm going to be the happy guy. Rather, doctrinal truth combined with truth in the inward parts should result in evangelical joy. Doctrinal truth without compromise combined with truth in the inward parts, which is what the Lord desires, should result in evangelical joy. Isaiah 12.3 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The wells of salvation are deep and profound and heavy but the water we draw is living water and it makes strong men smile. What are you drawing? For a lot of people, it looks like you're drawing some sludge. This is really important. That's what I noticed when I started watching those YouTube videos about open air preachers. They're all mad and angry. And so the, I remember as I would go, I just, I, I would, I mean, first of all, the reason why some of you, maybe many of you should be preaching open air is because you, you never prayed like you ought to pray until you had to go up on university campus and preach. Right, you're praying up there, God, this is a dumb idea, this is, God, this is a dumb idea, this is a dumb, please God, please God. I know this is, a, this is never gonna work, Right? <laughs> And I pray, God, if nothing else, please let them know that I'm here because I care. And I love them. And I remember, I think it was just one of the most you know, helpful answers to prayer. I remember praying that. And one of the first times I went out, I preached. And, you know, there's a few people that listened around. And I had a girl come up to me right afterwards. And she said, she said I didn't agree with anything you said. But um, thanks for caring enough to come out here. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What are you drawing? What are you drawing? If it's living water, how can you not smile? 
What do we joy in? We joy in the truth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third John. This is not sentimental joy. This is not happy, happy joy. This is, you know, joy every, you know, happy, happy everything. No, this is evangelical joy. This is joy in the truth. What's the truth? Well, Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended on high. He's king. He's Lord. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. Right? That's true. And it doesn't matter what anyone says or what they think. That's true. That's water. You can drink that all day long. Paul says, rejoice always. I know you're not gonna listen to me, so I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. Consider it all joy, my brothers. Right? That's what you're commanded to do. Not if you feel like it. This is one of your duties. Some of you are disobeying this. Say, well, I wanna be a realist. Fine, be a realist and rejoice. Yeah, tell the truth. I've already told you. Sentimentalism can go to hell. You are commanded to rejoice. Yeah, I love, you know, Paul. You know, he gets arrested. What are they doing in there? Singing! (laughs) It's my only request, Jody. I'm going to pull Tim right here. Here we go. Ready? Jody. I love My Soul Among Lions. You know I do. We, we don't even call it My Soul Among Lions. We call it Jody. <laughs> we do. Because we love Jody. So we say, let's put some Jody on. That's what we say in our house, in our car. It's Jody. So we love Jody and we love the Psalms. And been, that's why we came here last year. We didn't come for Tim. <laughs> we came for Jody. We came for the Psalms. My only request, Jody, is that I w- we have to be able to sing in jail. How are we going to sing in jail? Write psalms that we can sing in jail when we don't have the band, when we don't have the orchestra. We have to be able to sing in jail because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Right? I love how Paul opens Philippians, right? <laughs> Guys, I'm in jail. It's going great. Most of the prison guards converted, right? Here we go. Right? I mean, who had a worse life than Paul? Okay, a few saints did. But, I mean, come on. None of us. Right? He's thrown in jail. He's telling us, this is great. We've got it all. God's winning. Right? Where's your assignment? Your assignment there. Now rejoice there. Proclaim the gospel there. Confess your sins there. Love God there. Right? That's your assignment. Rejoice there. He said, but it's really hard. Shut up. Kill your feelings. <laughs> You're not that important. Jesus is. 